come to God's word this morning, you might want to um, blink a few times and shake your head. Try and clear your head. Just uh, move your shoulders a little, perhaps. Get yourself alert, thoroughly alert and very prepared. We are facing a challenge. I am facing a massive challenge. You too also facing a challenge. Let's just ask for God's help. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Lord Jesus Christ, lover of your church, speak to your people now. Feed us on your word, Holy Spirit. Come to us and help us. Father, Son, and Spirit, reveal to us the glory of your essence in all its purity, in all its simplicity. Amen. I'm going to begin this morning with three illustrations. Children, get your question sheets ready. I hope you received it this morning and your parents have been alert and have got that printed off for you. Uh, There it is, question sheet. Summarize the three illustrations of God that opened the sermon. Well, here they are. Three illustrations of the perfection of God. And I want to see what you think of them. Okay, so think critically of these three illustrations. Number one, God is like a perfect pie. Made of different ingredients mixed together and then divided up into pieces to be served and enjoyed, as you would expect of God. Each piece of this perfect pie, are you salivating already? You should be. Lunch is not far off. Each piece of this perfect pie is truly wonderful. You have one slice. It is love. And you have another slice, it is justice, and another slice, wisdom, and another, holiness, and another, truth. And when they're all put together, they make perfection. God is like a perfect pie. Or second, God is like a perfect machine. Made of all those different cogs and wheels and parts. All perfectly lubricated, all functioning absolutely smoothly. Each element in the machine working and cooperating together with all the other elements. Each playing its part to make a truly perfect union. We have a wheel here, it is love. We have a cog here, it is justice. We have a pinion here, it is wisdom. We have a cable here, it is holiness. We have a motor here, it is truth. And when they're all working in perfect balance together, it's perfection. God is like a perfect machine. Or number three, God is like a perfect symphony with all the musicians playing their different instruments in the perfection of harmony 
where the composer and the conductor have done their job to perfection. Here are the strings playing God's love. There is the brass section playing his justice. Here is the woodwind dissertating on his wisdom. Here is the percussion sounding out his holiness. And here is the piano playing his truth. And all of these instruments together under the direction of the conductor, under the supervision of the composer, produces a sound you cannot even describe. It is perfection. So what do you think of these three illustrations? God is like a perfect pie. God is like a perfect machine. God is like a perfect symphony. Well, I have perhaps led you into a little trap. Or maybe I haven't. Maybe you've spotted it already. Because you see, if these illustrations of God were acceptable, then God would be, and this is the phrase to try and get our minds around, then God would be compound in his essence. God would be compound in his essence. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? Preacher, Explain your terms. I will. I promise. What does it mean for God to be compound in his essence? If he is, what would that mean? Well, we've had a cooking illustration. We've had an engineering illustration. We've had a musical illustration. Now let's go into the chemistry lab and have a chemistry illustration. What is a compound molecule? Chemists amongst us. What is a compound molecule? Well, it is one that is made up of two or more atoms or elements. So something that is compound is made up of two or perhaps three or more different elements. And they come together and they make a compound molecule. Like water. Water is a compound molecule. Because you have in water oxygen and Hydrogen, two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen, they come together, H2O, we all know that, we see it a lot in advertising, don't we? I think there's actually a company called H2O. So here it is, two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen come together creating a compound molecule made up of two different distinct elements, which means that a compound molecule is not... Pure and simple, is it? It is not pure and it is compound. It is impure and compound rather than pure and simple. So let's ask this question of God then. Is God a compound God? Is God made up of different elements? Are we to think of God as the result of joining together love and justice and wisdom and truth and holiness in a particular kind of way? In a, obviously a perfect way. And then we have God. Well, Matthew Barrett says it this way, and I'm quoting from different people a bit more today because 
I want to show you uh, that I'm not alone in this perspective and also some of these statements really are incredibly helpful. This is what he says. The perfections of God are not, clue, not like a pie. As if we sliced up the pie into different pieces, love being 10%, holiness 15%, omnipotence 7%, and so on. Unfortunately, this is how many Christians talk about God today. As if love, holiness, and omnipotence were all different parts of God. God being evenly divided among his various attributes. He goes on, some go even further, believing some attributes to be more important than others. This happens most often with divine love, which some say is the most important attribute or the biggest part of the pie. But God is not like a pie. And God is not like a machine. And God is not like a symphony. Because God is not compound at all. On the contrary, God is pure and simple. Think about it. What is required of a compound? Something that is made up of different elements joined together. What is required of of a compound something that is made up of different elements joined together well before the compound exists what has to exist the parts the parts have to exist don't they before you can build your machine you have to have all the parts tony mentioned blue peter in a sermon recently well that's how it is in blue peter isn't it They've got all the parts and all the bits. And it used to frustrate me when I was a kid because they were all perfect. And I could never get them perfect. I did not like Blue Peter. It was all too perfect. And it never worked that way for me. But, you know, in order to construct the thing, you've got to have all the parts, haven't you? In order to create the symphony, you've got to have all the instruments and all the orchestra. And you've got to have the conductor and so on. You've got to have the parts. Is God like that? Do all these bits exist and then we put them together to make God? Is justice there and love here and holiness here and righteousness here and truth here and then we bring them together to make God? And so God is compounded out of these different things? For a compound to exist, the parts must exist first. And secondly also, the compounder must exist. The person who puts them all together. Have a gorgeous, sumptuous pie over which you salivate and divide into slices. You've got to have somebody to bake the pie. Bring all the ingredients together and make them. To get that machine, you've got to have the engineer who puts it all together. And to get that symphony, you've got to have the composer and the conductor. And without the composer and the conductor, you don't get a symphony. So if God is compounded, who did the compounding? And where did the bits come from? It just cannot be. It just cannot be. God is pure and simple. He is not the result of joining any parts together in any sense at all. Think about it further. What is true of every compound? 
Not only is it made up of parts, designed and built by someone greater than the compounded thing, there is more to say about it. It can be diminished. If the violins are removed, the quality of the sound will be diminished, won't it? It could be improved. If you only added a little bit more to the pie, it would have tasted even better. It can be divided into its parts. You can dismantle the machine into the cog and the wires and the motor and the wheels and so on. You can disassemble the thing, can't you? And so it can be destroyed. If God is a compound of different parts and elements, he can be diminished, he can be improved, he can be divided into his parts and he can be destroyed. That's why one theologian has said, if God is not a simple God, then we may as well be atheists. Because God just doesn't exist. Matthew Barrett, again, explains that in its essence, a compound thing or being must be transient, impermanent, reducible, mutable, fragile, incomplete, and therefore dissolvable. In other words, any compound cannot be perfection. It is inferior to the one who brings together its parts and it can be deconstructed and destroyed. Now, what do you think? Of the illustrations with which we started. I hope you're kind of bouncing up and down in your seat wherever you are. Or if you're standing up, you're hopping about saying, no, 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 they're all wrong. Spot on. They're all wrong. They are all dreadfully wrong. You can make them sound wonderful. But they are just plain wrong. Because God is not the sum of his parts. We're up to question three now in the question sheet. I know this is difficult, but seek to follow. This is the first sentence to be finished in the question sheet under question three. God is not the sum of his parts. You and I and everything that is created in the entire universe is the sum of of parts, parts that have been created by God and parts that have been put together by God. But God is not. God is not a compound being. He is pure and simple. As Mark Jones puts it, God is free from all composition. He is not the sum of his parts. There is not one thing and another in God. Rather, whatever is in God, God is. Whatever is in God, God is. He is absolute, which means that there are no distinctions within his being. And as absolute, God alone is the sufficient reason for his eternal existence. What a statement that is from Mark Jones. God alone is the sufficient reason for his eternal existence. It's true of God, but not of any other being. Any and every creature, including the greatest of the angelic beings, is not the reason for his own existence. Only God is. 
God is the reason for his own existence. And God is the reason for the existence of everyone and everything else. This means that God simply is. All that is in God is God. God is all that is in him. No compartments in God. No compartments. No sections in God. Sorry, no sections. No pieces in God. No parts in God. Not even aspects of God. Not when we talk about his essence. In his essence, it is not even proper to speak of attributes in God. Which is one reason why I prefer to use the word perfections. Because it prevents us from falling into that trap. When we think of attributes, I don't know about you, but I certainly think of parts of God. And that is not helpful. Whereas if we think about perfections... We think about, or at least I do, the completeness of God. And that's a much more helpful way of thinking. Because there is not even any harmony in the essence of God. Because there is nothing to harmonize. Just pure being, pure simple essence. The purity that is God. This means, and yes, we should get tremendously excited about this. This means that God is all love and all justice and all wisdom and all holiness and all truth all at the same time without any need for harmony or balance or nuance or evening out or weighing up here and weighing up there. He just is all of this in all fullness. Indeed, in the infinite eternality of the absolute perfection of his glorious being, God is. What a God he is. What a God he is. And what a joy and a privilege it is to study him in this way. Do you not love and adore and desire to worship such a God as this? Is he not worthy of all our devotion and adoration and praise? And yet, of course, this presents us with a massive problem. Because we are just incapable of handling such a God in our minds. This is why we are just constantly going astray. We can only think one thought at a time. Sorry, ladies. Can't have it any other way. You're only capable of thinking one thought at a time. Now, it may be that ladies' minds work more quickly and they can switch from one thought to the next more quickly than men who are terribly slow. But nonetheless, the, word, the wheels have to whir around and the cogs have to move and you have to move from one thought to the next, to the next, to the next in a succession of thoughts. You have to move from one action to the next, to the next, to the next in a succession of choices. And because that is how we are in our essay, in our being, in the core of our humanity, we struggle. To think about a God who is not like that. A God who is not, as we have seen, a succession of moments. 
a God who is not bounded by time or space or thought. The being concerning whom none greater can be thought. Well, we struggle. We constantly, in the succession of thoughts in our minds, we try to balance and harmonize God. We try to get God working, as it were, smoothly in our minds. And we usually fail, don't we? (laughs) If you're anything like me, it's a struggle. We have to think about God one thought at a time. We have to consider God one aspect, in inverted commas, at a time, even though we know that is not how God is in his essence. We have no choice. And so where does this leave us? How are we to work it out? How can we relate to a God that is not compound, a God who is pure and simple without misrepresenting him? And here we return to the 18. Question four. And the member of the A-team we are going to for help today is Augustine. Remember, we have Anselm and we have Aquinas too. But Augustine we are going to today. And Mr. Augustine is going to help us to understand a, an incomprehensible God in the sense of him being pure and simple when we are impure and compound. And he used an illustration that is very helpful. It is the illustration of light. Now, any illustration is flawed if you push it too far because you cannot ultimately illustrate God. We've already said that, haven't we? But our minds are limited and we've got to try. We've got to try and grasp onto something which we say, ah, now that works. Now, a pie doesn't work. A machine doesn't work. A symphony definitely doesn't work. It's it's a really unhelpful illustration. But here is something that does work. Light and a prism. You know what a prism is? It's like a triangular piece of glass, isn't it? Or perspex. And you shine the light, which is pure and clear, you know, like you're looking through light now, through this camera, and the light hits the prism. And then, I I remember doing this at school, Um, one of the few things I remember in physics lessons. I didn't listen very well in physics lessons. Uh, Anyway, let's not go into that. So, the light hit the prism, and then it refracts, doesn't it? It's called refraction. I think that's right. Refraction? Yes, Tony's nodding. Okay. Refraction. And it refracts into all the different colors of the rainbow, I think, effectively. And Augustine says this. Let me quote him now. Although light is of one kind, it suffuses the objects with a luster that varies in accordance with their different qualities. So light is of one kind to our eyes. Now, we're not talking about the physics here. We're just talking about the perception of it. So light is of one kind to our eyes. We see light just as one clear thing. And and then it hits this prism and it refracts into all these different colors. It's the same thing, isn't it? It's not changed in its essence. But it appears different to us. And that is how we perceive God. God is actually one like the light. God is actually, in his essence, pure and simple. No division within God. But we perceive him 
as all these different refracted beams of light with a luster, as Augustine says, that varies. And we see that variety as we perceive it as God's love and God's justice and God's wisdom and God's power and God's goodness and God's truth and so on. And we see all of these things and we say, how wonderful is that? But we must not then think that God is constructed of all those different parts. No, he is one pure and simple, undivided whole. Augustine has a phrase. He uses this phrase, the simple multiplicity and manifold simplicity that we perceive in God. The simple multiplicity and manifold simplicity. So it's simple. It's one. It's the light. Think of the light. It's one. It's pure. And yet when it hits that prism, which is our perspective, the way we see God in creation, all these different colors come out. So everything that God does is love and everything that God does is justice and everything that God does is wisdom. But we do not perceive it that way. We perceive love here and justice here and wisdom here. Do you see the point? And yet they're all one in God. No balance, no harmony, no working it all out, no nuance, no, oh, let's make sure it's all kept even here. No, God simply is an undivided essence, pure and simple. Now we have labored this point to try to explain. And you might be saying, preacher, preacher, where's your proof for this in the scripture? Take us to a proof text. Well, often the call for a proof text when we come to these very, very profound doctrines is not so readily available because it's too complex to explain in one text. But every passage of the Bible that unfolds the being of God shows us that God is pure and simple. And Exodus 3 is one of those passages. Let's go to it. What do we learn about God here in this passage? Well, we learn that he is pure and simple holiness. All of God is holiness. When God reveals himself, and remember the refracted beams coming out of the prism, purity of God, but we see the different aspects. Moses comes to the burning bush. Moses knows that it is God in the burning bush revealing himself to Moses. What is Moses to do? He is to take his sandals off his feet. Verse 5, because the place where he stands is holy ground. Why is the ground holy ground? Is it because God says it is? No. It's not holy ground because God says it's holy ground. It's holy ground because God is holy. And where God is, it's holy. It's as simple as that. It's God's being. Yes, God says it's holy ground. Why? Because he is there. Moses, I am here. And I am holiness. I am all holiness. No wonder he was afraid to look on God. Verse 6. Because God is pure and simple holiness. But God is also, verse 6, pure and simple eternal life. This is how Jesus uses this text when he's speaking to the Sadducees in the Gospels about the resurrection. They don't believe in the resurrection. So God says, so Jesus says, but what did God say to Moses? He said, verse 6, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. But Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were dead by this time. 
Is God the God of the dead or the God of the living? No, he's the God of the living. Where were Abraham, Isaac and Jacob at the time when God spoke to Moses? They were with God in glory. In their glorified spirits. Do you see the point? God is life. You cannot come into heaven and into the presence of the fullness of the being of God and not be alive. You can't be dead in heaven. It's impossible because God is life. And where the fullness of God's being is displayed, you have life. And then God is pure and simple faithfulness. What does he say in verses 7 to 10? He says, I have seen the affliction of my people. And I am going to deliver them. And I'm going to bring them out of Egypt. And I'm going to take them, verse 8, into the land flowing with milk and honey. And I am going to dispossess all the people who live in the land. And I'm going to give it to my people. And so, Moses, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh. And you're going to do this work. And when Moses objects, God repeats, verse 16, that he must gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the God of the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, appeared to me saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land flowing with milk and honey. God is acting. God is pure and simple faithfulness. Everything that God does is faithful. Faithful to himself, faithful to his word, faithful to his promises. God cannot not be faithful because he is not part faithfulness and his faithfulness has to compete with his justice and his faithfulness has to compete with his wisdom and he's going, oh, how do I stay faithful to these really rebellious Israelites when I've got... This massive slice of justice I've got to wrestle with. And this this massive slice of wisdom. This is a real challenge for me, says God. No, he is all faithfulness. And all holiness. And all life. And he is all independence. And this is at the heart of the passage. And this is our text, isn't it? Verse 14. When Moses says, whom shall I say has sent me? God says, you tell them. I am has sent me to you. Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is my memorial to all generations. I am has sent me. What is God saying? God says, I am absolutely independent. I do not depend on a compounder, a composer, a conductor, an engineer, a constructor, a baker. I do not depend on anyone outside of myself for anything. I am God and there is no other. I am simply I am who I am. Upon whom do I depend? Myself. And everything in me is absolutely pure and simple. No complexity. No composition. No balancing out this and that. No trying to harmonize. No working out how it all fits together. Simply God. Pure and simple, independent, the great I am. 
and God is pure and simple omnipotence. We see that from verses 18 to 22. How can God be so sure that it is all going to work out exactly as he says? How can he be so sure that the Israelites will come out of Egypt? Won't Pharaoh resist? Oh yes, of course Pharaoh will resist. But God knew that and God had it all in hand. And God would bring them out, verse 19, by a mighty hand. But we mustn't think of God's mighty hand as being a part of him. God is part mighty hand. As well as part other things. No, God is all mighty hand. In that sense, with the limitations of our thinking and understanding, God is omnipotent, all power. Everything God does is done with all power. There is nothing God does that is part power or a little bit power. Balancing out with a little bit of love. Balancing out with some wisdom. Balancing out with some goodness. Balancing out with some truth. And perfectly harmonizing it all. No, 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 no. God is all omnipotence. Because he is all independence. And all faithfulness. And all eternal life. And all holiness. Without division. Without composition. Now we can see that in Exodus 3, can't we? But you know, nowhere is the pure simplicity of God's being seen more clearly by us than at Calvary. At the cross, there is no balance or harmony of God's attributes, as though his love and his justice have to be harmonized by his wisdom and his power Do you know, many people portray it that way. And it's not true. Remember what we have said. His love is his justice, is his wisdom, is his power. They are all one in his being and cannot be divided. We may see them refracted through the prism of the cross, but they are all one in God as we trace back those multiplicity of Simple beings back into the being of God. We see that God is simple, pure and simple. Consider for a moment what angels see at the cross. And we're up to question seven now on our question sheet. How do angels learn about God? Consider for a moment what angels see at the cross. Remember, the angels as creatures cannot perceive the undivided essence of God's pure and simple being any more than we can. They are creatures and they can only perceive God through Christ. How do the angels learn about God? Through the Lord Jesus Christ, just the same way as we do. As Mark Jones states, quote, Christ reveals God to both men and angels. The angels receive their knowledge of God through the Son of God who created them. Indeed, when the angels witness Christ's crucifixion on the cross, where the Father deserted him, they learned more about God and his attributes than in all the previous actions he had performed. The angels desire, says Peter, to look into these things. Which things? The things of the cross. Because in and through the cross, the center of all human history, the center of the, of, of the purpose of God in constructing this universe in the first place, 
This act of redemption there at the cross, God displays to angels, to demons, to men, saved men, lost men, to all creatures, to all creation. He displays his pure and simple being in the most wonderful way. So what did the angels see and learn? What is it that they meditate on as they look at the cross? What refractions of God's pure and simple essence were seen by those fiery creatures when they looked upon the cross? Well, they saw the perfection of wisdom. Where the wrath of God, which is not Of the essence of God. The wrath of God is where his justice meets sin. We see God's wrath as the result. God is not all wrath. We see God's wrath as the result of God's justice meeting human sin. That's how it displays itself. We see the perfection of God's wrath meeting the perfection of God's mercy. His kindness, his pity, his compassion. Towards sinners, which is, and that mercy is the perfection of his love coming together. And as we perceive it and see it, there is such wisdom, is there not? The perfection of God's wisdom displayed, refracted at the cross, but don't make the mistake, trace it back. It's one pure essence within God. The perfection of wisdom. We see the perfection of justice in the display of his righteous indignation. As his his own righteous wrath is propitiated in his son on the cross. The perfection of justice. Now the perfection of justice is seen on the cross in a way it will never be seen in all eternity in hell. In all eternity in hell, the perfection of God's justice is seen in his holy wrath, unleashed on sin and sinners and Satan. But on the cross, it is seen more clearly. For the infinite, eternal and unchangeable righteousness of God is seen displayed on the cross. And the nature of the wrath that is unleashed on Christ on the cross is of a degree That is far greater than anything we will ever see in hell. It's the cross which displays God. The cross displays the perfection of his love in redeeming grace. Such love as we have said. Love came down to earth in the person of Christ. Love went to a cross. It wasn't just loving what God did on the cross through Christ. It wasn't just a loving act. It wasn't just a part of God. Oh, here is a slice of God. It's love. We'll make it a little bit bigger because we want it to have a, a bigger influence on what he does than, than anything else. And, and, and people who think of God in that way think they're doing God a favor because we're making God's love appear more than all the other things. His justice, his righteousness, his truth, and so on. God forbid. Don't you see? God isn't 10% love or 15% love. God isn't 25% love or 50% love. God isn't 80% love or 90% love or 99% love. God is love. All of God is love. All love is in God. All love flows from God. God flows with everlasting, infinite love. He's all love. But he is also all holiness. 
And the fact that he is all love does not undermine the fact that he is all holiness. For he is all love and all holiness in the pure simplicity of his being. So all that he does in love, he also does in holiness. And we see that at the cross, the purity of the righteousness of God, the holy justice of God displayed on the cross. If, if it was holy ground in Moses, for Moses in Exodus 3 on the mountain, how much more holy when the Lord Jesus was crucified on Calvary? And there's no competition between holiness and love. There's no balancing out of holiness and love. There's no competition because God is all love and God is all holiness and God is all kindness manifested on the cross in his amazing patience. And God is the perfection of power as he accomplishes what seems to be impossible on the cross. That is why the angels desire to look into it. How does God do this? Such almighty power displayed on the cross, all power and all faithfulness in fulfilling all the promises he'd made. Throughout the Old Testament and in being faithful to his own character and being in essence. Tozer puts it this way and this is such a helpful statement. He said when God justifies a sinner. Everything is in God is on the sinner's side. Did you hear that? When God justifies a sinner. Everything in God is on the sinner's side. All the attributes of God, he goes on to say, are on the sinner's side. It isn't that mercy is pleading for the sinner and justice is trying to beat him to death. God forbid. Tozer concludes, all of God does all that God does. I love that. All of God does all that God does. There are no parts in God. Now, this revelation of God as the pure and simple one at the cross is the ground of Paul's tremendous confidence in Romans 8. We love Romans 8, don't we? <laughs> and rightly so. Which Christian could not love Romans 8? Which Christian could not revel in Romans 8? Which Christian could not bask in the sunshine of Romans 8? But the argument of Paul in Romans 8 can only work if God is pure and simple. If God is not pure and simple, and Romans 8 doesn't work. What does it say in verse 28? It says, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God. To those who are the called according to his purpose. How can all things work together for good? How can God be so absolutely sure that there never will be any mistakes? How can he be so certain that there will be nothing outside of himself that causes him to change his plan? How can he be so sure that every nuance of your life, surely God is having to balance so many things. God is having to spin so many plates. How can it be done? It can be done because he is pure and simple God. He is all perfection and all glory, all wisdom, all justice, all love, all holiness, all kindness, all power and all faithfulness. And his wisdom is his love, is his justice, is his holiness, is his kindness, is his power, is his faithfulness. Because it is all one in God. 
this pure and simple God. So when God says, I have all the bases covered, when God says, I simply cannot make mistakes, it is true because God never balances anything. God never has to work anything out. The cogs and the wheels are never whirring in God. Things are not being mixed together. Even wonderful things like justice and goodness and truth and mercy and kindness and love. No, no, no. There is no conductor. There is no composer. There is just God. Just God. We mustn't imagine God covering the bases or God handling the challenges because there are no bases with God and there are no challenges with God. He simply is. And when he says, I am who I am. And as the I am who I am, I say all things work together for good for you because I've loved you and I've called you and I have a purpose for you. That means every single nanosecond detail in your life will work together for good. And it cannot not. Why? Because God is pure and simple. Only a pure and simple God can track out the entirety of human history, verse 29 and 30, and talk about this golden chain where no link can be broken because, in fact, in God there is no chain and there are no links. Just pure Godness. We see a chain and we see links and we see separate things and it's how our minds have to work. But remember the illustration of the prism. Track back all those wonderful, colorful beams into the prism and it is the pure essence of God. And so when Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? We now see what he means. If the pure and simple God is for you, then answer the question, Christian, who can be against you? Is it as though, are we dualists? Is it as though there is a fight? Well, God's got to fight on here. He's got to fight off Satan and he's got to fight off justice at the cross with his love. And he's got to, he's got to fight with his wisdom and try and reconcile his mercy and his truth. And, you know, is, is there a fight on there? There's no fight. There's simply God. The God who is. We see fights. We perceive problems. We see links in chains. We see all kind of refracted beams. But it's one in God. And because God is for me. No one can be against me. And if God loves me. Then it's not just infinite love. I mean how can you say that? Not just infinite love. But it's true. It's not just infinite love. It's not just eternal love. It's not just unchangeable love. It is all love. It is all the love there is. Because Christian, what you have is God. All that is in God. Is for you. As Tozer says. And you see that at the cross. And so no wonder Paul is persuaded. That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which comes to us and is revealed to us in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we say, well, that's a bit obvious, isn't it? And it is. 
So we turn to our final hymn. Look at it with me, please. One, three, five. What a hymn Gadsby has left us here. Oh, watch matchless condescension the eternal God displays, claiming our supreme attention to his boundless works and ways, his own glory he reveals in gospel days. In the person of the Savior, all his majesty is seen. Love and justice shine forever and without a veil between. Do you see there's no veil between love and justice? They're one in God. We approach him and rejoice in his dear name. Would we view his highest glory? Here it shines in Jesus' face. Sing and tell the pleasing story. Oh, you sinners saved by grace and with pleasure. Bid the guilty him embrace. In his highest work, redemption. See his glory in a blaze beyond mortal comprehension. Higher than an angel's praise. Grace and justice here unite to endless days. True, tis sweet and solemn pleasure, God, to view in Christ the Lord. Here he smiles and smiles forever. May my soul his name record. Praise and bless him and his wonders spread abroad.